society is really into love, isn't it? Whereas in contrast, Christians, oh, what a bunch of haters Christians are. People who would lead us into a miserable world of hate and repression. And yet the Bible is full of love. And we worship a God who is love. And Christians should be people of love. Whereas our society has got love almost completely wrong. Not, I say almost, almost completely wrong. And so we need to hear what the Bible says about love and we've been in a series on that. A series that has not managed to cover it all, there's just too much to cover. We're coming towards the end of that series and today we're turning to the most famous chapter on love, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Would you turn to that if you've got a Bible? If you haven't, there's a few on the shelves at the back there still. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as usual page numbers and notes are on the yellow sheet. It's a beautiful chapter, it's often read at weddings, Tony Blair read it at Princess Diana's funeral if I remember rightly, and yet when you read it properly, and when you see it in the context of chapters 12 and 14, which of course it comes between, you find its tone is not warm and gentle. No, this chapter has a tone of stern rebuke. It was written to Christians in a town called Corinth who were proud and showy and self-centred and treating their fellow Christians badly. And Paul is writing chapter 13 to rebuke them and to correct them. And that is usually missed when people read this chapter. So this morning... I'm trying to preach the lovely subject of love, but I must preach it in the tone of this chapter, which might not be the tone you'd expect or maybe want. Let's get into it. First of all, we have in verses 1 to 3 the necessity of love. Verses 1 to 3 show us the necessity of love. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now the Corinthians were very pleased with themselves. And one of the things they were most pleased with is they thought they could speak in the languages of angels. And maybe they could. Paul doesn't say you haven't got this gift really. Paul doesn't say to them, you shouldn't speak in tongues. You can read chapter 14 and find he doesn't say you shouldn't. But he says the gift is no good without love. Try to imagine you were in that city of Corinth 2,000 years ago. And as you walk through the streets, you hear a gong resounding. You think, what's going on there? And so you follow the sound and you get to an idol temple. And the gong is calling people in to the idol temple. And you go inside and you find a cymbal is clanging. And the cymbal is clanging supposedly to drive away evil spirits. That's sadly ironic because the idol worship in there is demonic. There you see people sacrificing to an idol. And there you see men going into the temple prostitute. That's what Paul is getting at in verse 1 when he says, resounding gong or clanging cymbal. God says in verse 1, you Corinthians, your tongue speaking you are so pleased with, if you have no love, is just like what goes on in the idol temples. Can you imagine how devastating that is? 
They're tongue speaking. That's a gift of the Spirit. We're doing it in church. And we're so pleased with it. It's just as, it's no better than what goes on in the idol temples. And you know, unlike our politically correct age, they would know what that idol worship was like. Devastating. And he says it again in verse 2. And he says it again in verse 3. And what is God saying to us today? Well, it's fairly obvious, isn't it? The parallel for us in Hollywell isn't tongue speaking, whatever you might think of that. The parallel is this, if we know our Bibles well, if we preach good sermons, if we sing better hymns than those trite songs they sing in other churches, but we're doing it out of pride and feeling superior and looking good, or what feels good to me, do I enjoy it? Not out of love for God and desire for his glory. We're no better than what goes on in the Hindu temples of Leicester. And I'm not saying that as a politically correct person who thinks what goes on there is all right. It is not. If you've given money and you've put yourself out for others and you've worked hard to serve in the church, but it's been to get others' regard or so you feel better about yourself, not because you want their good... Verse 2 says, you are nothing. Verse 3 says, you gain nothing. I feel really offensive saying that, but it's God's word saying it. It's amazing, isn't it? This chapter is seen as just a beautiful poem to read in weddings, when actually it's a hit you straight between the eyes sort of chapter. And it does so again in the next section. Let's move on to the next section, verses 4 to 7. The nature of love. The nature of love. This is the section we need to spend most of our time in. Verses 4 to 7. Now these Corinthians, the trouble is they were so proud, they could probably persuade themselves that they were loving, because they were so full of themselves. So verses 4 to 7 are to show them and us what love is like. Now there is so much here, I'm not going to even try to go through it all. I just want to give you two chunks of it. And the first chunk is this. Love is seen in how you treat and think about your fellow Christians. It's not the only way love is seen, but it's a big part of this chapter. Love is seen in how you treat and think about your fellow Christians. These Corinthians, they felt superior to others. They had the impressive gift of speaking in tongues. They had impressive teachers they were proud of. I'm a follower of Apollos. No, I'm a follower of Paul. No, I'm a follower of Peter. He's the best. They were proud of their impressive teachers. They had sophisticated knowledge. They weren't like the country bumpkins in the area around. They knew an idol is just a statue. And so food dedicated to an idol didn't really matter. These ignorant people think it's a big deal. They were superior in their knowledge. Paul says to them here, you may have all that... But do you have the number one thing, love? Because love is patient. See that verse 4? Verse 4, love is patient. Patient with those Christians who don't know what you do. Patient with those Christians who don't have your gifts. Patient with those Christians who have weaknesses that are different from yours and so you see their weaknesses while you don't see yours. Patient. Paul says... You may have all of that superiority, but do you have love? Because love, 
verse 4, does not envy or boast or be proud. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't like finding a fault so you can feel superior. It doesn't walk around with a mental list of what other people have done to hurt you or ways they're not as good as you. Paul says you may have all those other things that make you feel superior, but do you really have love? Because without it, you're no better than the idol worshippers. Kamal is a highly regarded member of his church. He's so reliable, you can always rely on him to do the work. He's got good Bible knowledge and his contributions to home group are helpful. And he's often in the town giving out tracts and trying to speak to people and tell them the gospel. And then along comes someone cleverer than Kamal, whose contributions to home group are more appreciated. And you start to detect some envy. And you start to notice that he likes to find fault with this rival and point out the rival's faults. You notice he's impatient with people who don't join in with what he's doing. Instead of appreciating what they're doing. It may be different, but that's because they've got different gifts. It's not because they're no less enthusiastic for God. But Kamal thinks it's no good unless they're doing what he wants, his project. Kamal is an example of someone can look impressive in church, but have underlying behind the surface a lack of love. Are you like him? Or do you have love in how you treat and think about your fellow Christians? I said I'm taking verses 4 to 7 in two chunks. Here's the second chunk. Another thing here about the nature of love is it's not unrestrained feeling. This is so important in our society. It's not unrestrained feeling. Now, Taylor Swift. I know almost nothing about Taylor Swift, except she seems to be a gold ring in a pig's snout. And if you don't know what that means, read Proverbs 11. I think it's verse 22. Taylor Swift sings, so I'm told, they tell me I did something bad, then why does it feel so good? Now that is such a common idea, isn't it? You just Google things like, it feels, they, Google that phrase, Google, how can it be bad if it feels good? Songs, stories, films continually tell you this, don't they? Go with your feelings. Love is a feeling that is to be unrestrained. Go with it. It gets into church. Sadly, it gets into church. A Christian told me, I'm marrying that unbeliever, that's that. I love her. You cannot legislate for love. You cannot deny my love. In other words, love is a feeling that must not be restrained. Go with it. What does 1 Corinthians 13 say? Have a look at verse 5. Love is not easily angered. If you love, you will restrain your anger. You will exercise self-control for the good of those you love. Now, isn't that really obvious? <laughs> That's so obvious, you might wonder why I bother saying it. If you love someone, you don't just let rip, you exercise self-control for the good of the one you love. It's obvious, but it shows up. Our society's got something very wrong about love. Because it says love is this feeling you can't control. You just let your passions go. This also teaches us something very practical. 
which is love means bringing passions under self-control for the good of those you love. Whether it's the passion of anger or the passion of lust. Verse 6. Verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. In other words, love is concerned about right and wrong. Love doesn't mean you abandon ideas of right and wrong because, well, this feeling is just so strong. I love, so I must go with it. No. Love is concerned about right and wrong. A boyfriend and a girlfriend say, how can we deny our passion for each other? Our society says, that's right, that's love. The Bible says, no, no. Love is caring for the other person and therefore doing what's right for them and trusting God when he says, what is right is stay pure and save all sexual activity for marriage. Love isn't just unrestrained feeling. And it's also not just unrestrained feeling in the verse 7 sense. Verse 7. Love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love keeps going, not just when we've got the feeling. And anyone who knows anything realistic about feeling in love is the feeling doesn't always stay there the whole time. But love keeps going. Because if it's all about the feeling, it's such a twisted idea of love, it's really about us. But if our concern is for others, we keep going. Britney Spears is infamous for being in and out of relationships. Do you know how long her first marriage lasted? 55 hours. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? 55 hours, her first marriage. But she's just an extreme example of go with your feelings. If you do go with your feelings, it's not surprising if some marriages last 55 hours. The Bible says... Love desires the good of the other person and perseveres. Sometimes that's very difficult. And if you're finding it very difficult, you need the other parts of verse 7. Love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes. Who does it trust? Who does it hope in? In God. Because sometimes you need to love someone you find isn't very trustworthy. And you don't have that much hope in. That's sad. I hope that's not your case, but sometimes it is. You need to be trusting in God. There are times when loving is joyful and happy and easy. And I hope we're all having them. But there are times when it's not. And you need to trust God, that he will enable you to love. And you need to have hope in God. He'll bring some joyful fruit from this love. And then... Trusting God, don't give in to how you feel, persevere with loving. We've had the necessity of love, the nature of love, and then thirdly, the number one priority is love. This is verses 8 to 13. Verses 8 to 13. I'm not going to go through these verses. It will take us too long and take us away from the main thrust that I'm trying to give. But I just want to tell you, these verses say the number one thing to get is love. That's those verses in simple summary. The number one thing to get is love. The number one priority is love. The thing to pursue. What do you pursue? I I take it we're all pursuing something. What do you pursue? 
A friend of mine used to work on Wall Street, and he said on the train on the way home, people would have signs they'd hang around their necks saying, wake me at Darien or whatever town they were going to. Why would they do that? Because they're so worn out, because they're working so hard to pursue money. Aren't they? If you work on Wall Street as hard as that, you're working hard to pursue money. So you need a sign on, on yourself as you go home on the train. Wake me up when I get home. People work so hard to pursue money, popularity, success, fitness. I'm not saying these are necessarily wrong. What do you pursue? What do you pray for? Do you pray for stronger faith? Pray for strength for each day. Pray for your family. Of course, I'm not saying these are wrong. Quite right too. What do you pursue? What do you pray for? What do you pray for your children, parents? Do you pursue, do you pray for love? How much do you pray for love? I don't mean for someone to fall in love with you. That would be nice, but that's not what I'm getting at. I'm meaning this, do you pursue and pray for this 1 Corinthians 13 love, that you would have it, that you would be giving it to God and to others? It doesn't come naturally. It isn't always easy. Pursue it. Pray for it. Well, I've tried to take us through the three parts of 1 Corinthians 13 to see the necessity, the nature and the number one priority of love. I want to end with an important principle. So you ready for an important principle? It's this. All teaching of the Bible that shows us what we should be like is pointing three ways. Okay, here we've got a chapter that's showing us what we should be like. And all teaching of the Bible that does that is pointing in three directions. Here they are, pointing to our need of salvation because we fall short. Pointing to our saviour who doesn't fall short. And pointing to how we should live once we're born again. This chapter points to our need for God's work of salvation. We can sing hymns, can't we? Anyone can turn up and sing hymns. We can give time and money. We can even preach sermons and go out and spread the gospel. We can manage that. But we can't manage to make ourselves loving. We need God to give us loving hearts. We need his work of salvation. So if what I've said this morning has shown up a heart problem, don't ignore that. Don't in your mind be saying, oh, I must be okay. I've been a Christian for years. Look at all the things I've done for the church. That is dismissing 1 Corinthians 13. And God put this chapter here because we need it. Don't dismiss it. But also don't despair. Do not despair. Because the second way this points is to our Saviour who doesn't fall short. He has done chapter 13 fully. Doesn't mean we don't need to, but he has. He spoke amazing teachings, but he wasn't like a clanging cymbal. He did it out of love for the people he spoke to. He healed, not to impress, but out of love for the people who had need. He gave his body, didn't he? Like chapter, verse 3 says, but not to look good, but for the good of those he loves. Oh, he was so patient. He was so kind. He didn't delight in evil. He died to take away our evil. He is chapter 13. He's done it. 
So if chapter 13 has shown up a heart problem in you, don't ignore or dismiss it. Don't say, I can't really be that bad. Look, look how I've been for years. Get to the one who can change your heart, Jesus. Even if you say, well, I thought I'd done it before, do it again. Ask him to forgive you and change your heart. Here's a story for the children, but I suspect the adults might like it too. Children, you're listening to a story? I think it will help. Many years ago, in the Scottish village of Sawdale, there was a preacher called Mr Stewart. He preached the gospel, and to start with, people didn't like that, and they opposed him, but they saw, they listened to his message, they saw his life fitted with it, and he won them round, including the local landowner, a tough guy called the Laird of Sawdale. He was the biggest, strongest chap around. He would listen to Mr Stewart, he would help him, and one day Mr Stewart said, I want to go to the nearby town of Dingwall and preach the gospel. But the people of Dingwall said, we won't have you. If you come here, you're in danger. They threatened him. Well, the Lord of Sawdale, being the biggest and strongest man around, said, come with me, I'll get you there. They went to the church at Dingwall. There was a crowd blocking their way. The Laird of Sawdale, he pushed the way through. Got to the church doors. They were locked. He broke them open. Brought the preacher in, put him in the pulpit, sat on the pulpit steps and said to the people, no trouble from you or you'll have me to deal with. Well, many years later, the Lord of Sawdale, Laird, Laird of Sawdale, was a weak man lying in bed, dying. And Mr Stewart came to visit him. And he found he wasn't just weak in his body, he was troubled in his mind. The Laird of Sawdale said, I'm not ready to meet God. Everything I've done deserves God's curse. And Mr Stewart said, don't you remember all those things you've done for the church? Hey, don't you remember that time you sat on the pulpit steps so that I could preach? Lord of, Laird of Sawdale said, yeah, I remember. And I also remember I did it all out of pride. I did it all to look good. Now, Mr Stewart was a wise man. He didn't say, oh, none of us are perfect, never mind. No, he's a wise man. He told the Laird of Sawdale this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even the worst of sinners. And he told him the gospel he already knew. And there, as he lay dying, the Laird of Sawdale asked and trusted Jesus to forgive and change his proud, unloving heart. If 1 Corinthians 13 has been painful listening and shown things up about you that you'd rather not shown up, don't ignore it, but don't despair. Ask and trust the Lord Jesus to forgive and change your unloving heart. And then lastly, I did say it points three ways, didn't I? The third way was how we should live when we're born again. Fellow Christians, let's not complicate things. We've got to do chapter 13, haven't we? We could complicate it, but it's, it's not easy, but it's in a sense fairly simple. We have got to this week not be proud, but be kind, be patient, be loving. We've got to go now and do it.